North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you, natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's Word preached purely and His sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and His wisdom week in and week out and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, Our Savior, Pagosa Springs, has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. The 8th Annual Men's Gathering is happening at Lakeview Villages in Seymour, Indiana, the weekend after Easter, April 21st through the 24th. Join other Christian men for a relaxing weekend of fellowship, feasting, and fun of every kind. Men will learn how to resist tyranny and how to have a good conscience as fathers, men of the church, and citizens from our main speaker, Dr. Kuntz. He'll guide everyone there through scripture and church history as we seek to live as free men. Check out our website at www.mensgathering.us for more information and to register. You can also search Men's Gathering on Facebook for updates leading up to the event. It is going to be a wonderful weekend for men to relax in God's beautiful creation. The timely topic will be an encouragement and provide much-needed strength as we go to battle against the powers of this world. We hope you'll join us for the 2022 Men's Gathering, a proud supporter of A Brief History of Power. Dr. Kuntz, in our last episode dealing with finance and money and beginning to introduce that longer topic, when we recorded that, which is a couple weeks ago now, you and I began to have a conversation afterwards that I'm going to try to bring back if I can. And I don't know if I can, but it had to do with the recognition that untouchable castes exist in many societies and that the implications of the COVID mandates combined with the potential controls being put in place by things like passports were the reassertion of that distinction between untouchables and the self-sovereign castes uh, in our present day. And then if you can remember how this connection went, you and I began to talk about the Amish as an example of that tension already existing in America. Uh, and I don't know if this is right, but but for example, say the Amish people take tours to go look at them. They don't they don't <laughs> join them, right? So they, yeah, they are sort right. of that untouchable type, but not the way you think of it, say, being in in India. And then all of this was about the fact that propaganda, uh, indoctrination, education 
is attempting to create peasant thinking in the average human being, the average person in America, that we would assume ourselves to be a peasantry caste or class. Um, so what can you make of that spiderweb I threw out there and, and, and refabricate how that's going to move us into continuing conversation on finance? Yeah, there is enough there for everything we're recording today, just to, to, un, to you know, to tease out different things that you said. I Maybe to start with the Amish is that I think the Amish might be to people taking pictures of them, a kind of untouchable cast, but maybe it's a little more accurate to think of them as something like outlaws in the old sense of that word, not meaning that they're particularly transgressive or something, but they're just outside the protection of otherwise normative law, right? So there are people like this in most societies that are pre-industrial simply because there's enough space, usually woods. So it's not generally your, you know, farmland, let alone good farmland, that people like that are going to occupy. In early America, uh, the Appalachian mountain chain has this function that people go there in order to be left alone, to disappear. Or uh, you get something like this with the different, what are called maroon colonies in different Caribbean islands, which are colonies of escaped slaves, not actually that different from most of your people who are starting communities in North Carolina, Virginia, Pennsylvania, in colonial America. That is, there are always people who want to go somewhere to get away and, and to be left alone there. And those people might be untouchable in the sense that you can still make fun of hillbillies on anything in American media, really, if you want to. So they have untouchable attributes given to them. They're, they're disgusting. They're sexually licentious. They're improvident. They're addicted to drugs, whatever. But the people themselves may simply want to continue being there regardless of what they know other people say about them because out there they are to one degree or another left alone. And I think that the Amish are much more in this, you know, outlaw or untouchable thing. They're much more outlaws than untouchables because they do just want to be outside of otherwise all-encompassing networks, electronic, financial, etc. right? So a cast that isn't untouchable or outlawed so far our clergy in the United States of America. And we have a privilege that we can exercise if we want to, to opt out of social security. Well, guess what? If you're Amish, you get to do that regardless. And so anywhere that they exist, they're able to underbid even companies employing illegal immigrants who are otherwise paying their you know, workers very little because the Amish have such low labor costs. And, and some of that is, is very much enshrined. So they've had to fight for that, but that's an, that's an outlaw status. So I would say that an untouchable has some kind of religious sanction attached to it, right? So this, this exists in India famously, this exists in Japan, the Burakumin are people that pick up trash, deal with dead bodies, um, stuff like that. Those kinds of castes, I think, always exist. Question is, how seriously are they themselves taking it? Because at some point, like you might be untouchable to somebody else, but by your own light, you might be what I'm calling an outlaw. That is, you exist outside of networks that otherwise enslave. And so you're actually free. So I, I don't know that I'm, I, I'm trying not to be totally relativistic about this, but I think there is something a little bit relative about being an untouchable. You may be untouchable to somebody, but if you don't share his religion, you may actually, according to your own religion, be free. You might actually prefer that status. But, and, and that yeah, can, totally. That can go the way with, with the outlaw as well. But I guess where we were before, though, was seeing this as being not a preferable status because it's something being imposed on us by a, right. a, a yeah. religious mythology, which is collapsing around our ears, at least here in Illinois. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's just yeah. like that. There's a war in Ukraine. The Canadian truckers are done. The, war, the emergency powers are removed. And the COVID testing stations are all gone from around Rockford, Illinois. Boom, gone. Mm, poof, yeah. Right. It's, it's, it's quite something. Well, I, I think that the significance there with COVID is that they they have they are walking back even in Los Angeles County, even I hear rumblings in Germany, you know. They're walking back 
some of the stringency of COVID requirements. I don't, I don't really see that as a long-term victory because for me, this was never, I mean, I didn't start this podcast in order to share my deep knowledge of virology with everybody to prove them wrong once and for all, because I, that is not really the significance of what, of what has happened in the past two years. The significance involves a redefinition of freedom, life, normality, uh, lots of things, which is why people have woken up, right? Because there is a sort of shock similar to a dream state. Have I been living in a dream my whole life? So this has always been about, for instance, something that, that has happened and hasn't been walked back, which is in Canada, for example, the government's capacity to seize your assets. So just, just for comparison, right? You gave to the wrong, you gave to give, send, go. You gave to, what's the mainstream one? Go fund me. Go fund me, yeah. Uh, you gave to the wrong cause, right? So that's being revoked. Your bank account is subject to our control. <laughs> Compare this to this reality that George Washington has an account at the Bank of England, right? At the time of the revolution. And, you know, it's, it's brought up in public discussion, should we seize his assets? He is the commander of the rebel forces, right? Um, rebelling against the king. And they think, no, because that's his private property. Oh, wow. <laughs> we, we, can't, <laughs> we can't do that, right? So contrast that with two things going on as we record this, which is the Canadian government's assertion of authority, of ownership over private property, over bank accounts, over money that people have earned and, and are giving as they see fit. And then also um, something that we mentioned as a, as a potential thing that could happen uh, many times in, in various episodes, which is freezing Russians, Russian companies, the Russian government out of the international um, system of payment processing of bank transfers called SWIFT that is overseen by and, and fueled by the American government. So those, those two realities are ongoing, and those really are the same thing as saying, yeah, you have your own face, but now you have to wear a mask over it. I mean, the, so the issue here has never been like, okay, like once we find the real source of COVID and we figure out it was a Wuhan lab, like, you know, we're out of here because the, the things that we're talking about and, you know, now by 2022, we've gotten to with our larger framework for this year are not perennial realities, but they are very timely realities. So, you know, in 1132, I wouldn't have to do this podcast. I couldn't do a podcast, but you know what I'm saying? I wouldn't have to do this podcast the way we're doing it. COVID going away is just COVID going away. Okay. As like an indicator on your weather app of how many coronavirus infections and deaths there are in your area, right? That's all that that means potentially. Uh, mask mandates going away, even in California public schools. It doesn't mean that any of the things that they did or the ways that they lied to you or the objectives that they're seeking to achieve are going away. Right, right. I actually said this in a sermon. I, I really walked out on a line, I think, a little bit here. I don't like to get into politics and sermons, but the, the complaint about uh, Mr. Putin that he had said he would not invade Ukraine. And then he did. So he lied. And now I got MSNBC and CNN and Joe Biden saying, he lied, he lied. And it's like, wait a minute here. (laughs) Um, You've been lying for two years. Why would I believe anything? I'm not even sure he lied. I I I didn't look at the clip. I'm sure you can find the clip and prove me wrong. But then again, the deep fakes are really out there too these days too. So (laughs) so, so, to, to not fall back into the trap of thinking now the news is telling the truth. Right. That, that seems to be the big the big move right now. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, uh, Rachel Maddow confirmed Brief History of Power listener knows that we are headed into discussion of the world wars, which which we have, you know, we're, we're connecting to finance for reasons that are going to be obvious if they're not already. And so Rachel Maddow is listening and, and she knows where we're going. So she knows that she knows the playbook for getting yourself into a large war. And our media of all kinds is busily pursuing that right now. And you see in real time the same kinds of obsessive concern over something that no one knew anything about or cared anything about two weeks ago, 
right, with Eastern Europe. Um, you see the same kinds of public posturing by the churches, generally in favor of the Ukrainians, as if any of us knows or understands enough. Or, or I mean, let me just let me just repeat a talking point from before the first and second world wars in the United States. Any of us needs to care, okay? Like I, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say. Who, who of us needs to care? I know you might know people there. That's fine. That's great. I, and I don't personally care if you have in your head chosen a side. But the idea that potentially we're going to send, you know, Joe from, you know, Ventura, California to die for either Zelensky or Putin is on its face kind of insane. You know, it's very similar and but it doesn't get discussed in these terms. So your average person doesn't think in these terms. We don't really have a secure border on either border. That's right. Yep. We have a lot of drug smuggling problems on both borders. We have immigration problems, especially on the southern border, but also also on the northern. And, you know, we don't really pay attention to that. We're not discussing that. People don't have heated opinions about that, even though it obviously affects our lives, our labor market, all kinds of stuff. And so, you know, I mean, the exact same thing just happened with COVID two years ago. Right. No one knew or cared anything about Wuhan, China or, you know, gain of function research or any. We didn't know these terms. We didn't use these terms. We weren't wearing surgical masks in public. That was something that really only people from various East Asian countries would do in public in the wintertime prior to 2020. So we changed our entire lives. Let's watch. Let's let's do that over again, I guess, is what's happening here. But it also happened with both world wars is that the media has an incredible power over people's minds. And the sad thing here, I think very concretely in terms of untouchables, outlaws, or maybe just average people is that as we're going to talk about over this week and next week, the people in charge do not, do not ever really have to suffer from these things. I mean, Gavin Newsom famously didn't wear a mask. Um, even in 2020 at private gatherings, that's what the photograph showed us. But also these people very famously, um, and with a very few exceptions, do not die in any wars that they get us into, right? Average people die in these wars. So our concern here is, as always, not about virology or Eastern European politics, particularly, although we can talk about both. It's always with the flourishing of God's people, especially, but also of all people. Um, and we don't want to see lies predominate. And I think with the buildup in Ukraine and the, and the Russian invasion and everything, you're seeing that. I mean, sometimes hilariously, right? So there's there's the there's the comedian Sam Hyde, and someone makes a meme of you know saying that he's this famous Ukrainian <laughs> jet pilot, you know, jet pilot, and he has downed whatever like 25 Russian jets in the past three days or something. And his name is like Samuel Hyad, and it's written in like Cyrillic. And it, it's a complete joke. It's a total joke. And a Republican congressman from Illinois, Adam Kinzinger, reposts this and says, like, God bless you, Samuel. Like, he doesn't know the joke here because, I mean, I mean, there is just a degree of absurdity that we're right back to, you know, the, you know, public health commissioner of New York City in 2020 telling us, go to Chinatown, don't be scared of the virus, don't be racist, okay? But now it's not about wearing a mask or not, vaccine passports or not, they still have control over your money. It is about whether we are going to invest ourselves or other people, who knows, maybe we don't project that power, don't have that ability in a war that does concern Ukrainians, does concern Russians, but, you know, it doesn't concern America. It definitely is about virtue signaling too, right? It's it's about having Always. the right set of signs for showing that you're on the right side of society based upon what you've been told by a box is where you're supposed to stand. Yeah. And so one of my favorite pieces of news is the ABC stores out East taking all the Russian vodka off the shelf, which they've already bought, right? Like, take that, guys, <laughs> right? Right, yeah. <laughs> and we don't support Russia. Well, you did. You know, it's already there. Um, it, it is a meaningless virtue signal. It is the virtue signal of a non-virtue, uh, whereas to recognize, as you pointed out, that at home here in the United States, the State of the Union, that will be spoken tonight uh, as we record this, it is not good. It is not right. strong. 
There are many, many interior issues, both physical and social, that are collapsing around us. The least of which is not uh, inflation and in currency. Uh, The currency of our dollar being uh, really having trouble. uh, And I don't remember now. um, The the most recent news I saw on this was out of Ontario, so it's it's a bad example. Um, But the price of Cheerios being just like significantly up now, suddenly. Like I don't eat Cheerios, but but still, (laughs) like. Cheap oats, right? And, right. and, and they're getting right. expensive. Of course, the price of beef is going to go up. Uh, so uh, fracturing will continue until morale improves. Uh, that, that's kind of the, the state of the union right now. Perhaps we can shift this into the change in the world brought by the world wars. I know that's later in your list, but it seems like yeah. that's, that's maybe a nice place to start looking at. Um, uh, yeah, because it is during the, time, during the run-up to the First World War, which we can talk about this week and next to some degree in terms of the Federal Reserve. But I want to talk more about why that's part of a bigger picture rather than just talk about the machinations at Jekyll Island, Georgia, that get us a Federal Reserve Act. That run-up is a run-up the like of which has been attempted in other times and places, right? So your memory doesn't have to be that long to remember weapons of mass destruction in Iraq or any number of other claims made, the overthrow of the Taliban when ostensibly we started going in there, as Craig Whitlock narrates in the book, The Afghanistan Papers, which is a which is a worthy read. It's not one that I want to do a book report on necessarily, but it's a worthy read, a good, clear narrative about how confused we are once we actually get into a war. But we get into things. We don't know what we're doing. We always say we know what we're doing. That's how we mobilize people. We mobilize public opinion. And then once we're in, whether it's in France in 1917 or the Pacific and then eventually Europe in the Second World War or lots of other situations, we get in. We don't know what's going on. Guys on the ground are pursuing whatever it is that they've been told to do. They might be drafted. They might not have been drafted. And Once they come out, veterans are almost always the strongest. And I know this just from our listeners that I've talked to, honestly, the strongest critics of centralized governmental power, of managerialism, as James Burnham would call it, because they have realized what this actually creates, which is havoc and destruction. Okay. So a lot of these things right now, if you go look as we're recording this, you know, you can find sitting right next to each other a tweet that some blue check on Twitter puts out about, you know, heartbreaking Ukrainian troops, you know, leaving their loved ones at home. And then you can find right next to it the picture from a, you know, fictional film made, you know, five years ago from which that photo is actually taken. Right. And it, it doesn't it doesn't mean that none of it's real or it's all, quote, theater in some sense. It means that 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 theater is the general context for life as created by the media. It doesn't mean that nothing is real, that no one really dies in Iraq or Afghanistan or Ukraine or something. It means that those things are surrounded by and motivated by and certainly funded by something that is basically stage directions. And that reality means that the run-up to the First World War isn't really different in essence from the run-up to the Second or the run-up to most other wars prosecuted by modern states because they are fundamentally acts of theater. And that that has to do with the scale that they need to mobilize people on, finances on, uh, human beings, industrial machinery on. But it has to do, I think, more basically with the nature of the people that govern us. Um, And that nature is really the distinction between James Burnham, whom I've brought up a couple of times. Let me just introduce who he is a little bit. He was a Trotskyist. So he's a you know, a a certain kind of a Marxist. He's very active in various American socialist organizations, especially something called the Socialist Workers Party. He's He's a personal friend of Trotsky for a certain time during the early 1930s. He gets disillusioned when he realizes, as many others did, that Stalin and Hitler have made a pact. Okay. So that's in the late you know, late 1930s that he begins to be disillusioned, the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact comes out. And by 1941, he writes a book called The Managerial Revolution. 
And what he's seeing is that since about the, the run up to the First World War, we are shifting from a set of regimes all over Europe and America. And the reason that he picks those is that with Japan, those are the states that affect the entire world in the 19th, 20th, and 21st centuries, right? So he says, you know, I'm not analyzing India or China because they haven't mattered for the rest of the world, okay? In those countries, Europe, North America, eventually Japan too, you have a, you have a shift from what he calls a, a bourgeois or capitalist let's say society into not a socialist society as the socialists predicted. And his, his refutation is simply look at what happened in Russia. They, they tried to institute socialism. Class did not disappear. Freedom did not increase. International connection did not increase. The regime was propped up by a concentration of wealth actually greater than America's. Certainly personal freedom obviously did not increase. And it, it survived through Stalin by being patriotically motivated. You know, the Soviet Union fights a war in the Second World War that it calls and is still called to this day the Great Patriotic War. It is not the Great War to preserve or extend communism. So Burnham says, okay, well, what is happening here? What are the similarities? And he doesn't use a metric, which is it's very interesting because George Orwell actually reads this book. George Orwell, another disillusioned socialist reads this book and cites it as a kind of influence for the book 1984. But what's interesting is Burnham doesn't say that totalitarianism is some kind of unifying reality in the modern world. Okay. So I, I think this is interesting because not just because it's kind of a, an unusual perspective, but because it's like, okay, well, what, what does Justin Trudeau have in common with whoever his actual father is? <laughs> I knew you were going to do right. that. I was thinking it as you said it. Like, here comes the joke. Here it comes. You know, what is, well, you know, what, what does he actually have in common? Well, Justin Trudeau is not demonizing the kulaks, the, you know, small landowners of, you know, pre-Soviet Russia. He's not demonizing the Jews. Okay. He may be to some degree, de he may be at various times, let's say to one degree or another, demonizing people that aren't vaccinated or demonizing. If you looked at the, orders. Basically, white people could be arrested for protesting. Non-whites could not because of various historical grievances in the way that the Emergencies Act wasn't forced for as long as it was in force, right? So you do have you do have classes of demons at one time or another, okay? I think the issue there is that, that cla those classes can shift, right? So vaccine passports can go away, okay? Or even in certain polities, right? You could you could already see something like this in a majority minority city, like say Detroit in the United States. Whites could go away, but the way that the power functions doesn't go away. That's Burnham's insight, right? So you have your demon class. The demon class then is either oppressed or pacified or absent, but then the power continues to function in the same way. And the reason that it functions that way is that unlike a capitalist order in that in a managerial state you you're not really the state is not concerned to preserve your individual rights as it were right so burnham has a very historical look first of all at a capitalist world order which for your best example of that is going to be the united states of america it is it is born late enough that it doesn't really have okay I'm, I'm willing to talk about what, you know, Lovecraft and, and others would describe as the medieval character of certain parts of American culture all day. I get where they're coming from with that, but just our state as such is a, is a, in the classical sense, liberal order. Okay. So it's oriented toward the preservation of individual rights, the sanctity of property, stuff like that. Okay. Why is, why does that, why does that order disappear more or less quickly within almost all European and European descended nations in the 20th century. That's really Burnham's question, right? Why do I find the state managing things in Russia, in Germany, in Italy, in Britain, in the United States, in France, in Australia? Why also in Japan, which in its order is in this way European descended? So those, those questions are what's driving his idea that, yeah, we are, we are replacing owners 
which is the basis of capitalism as an order, owners who have money, okay, we are replacing them with managers who don't technically own things necessarily. They might simply be salaried workers, but they what they hold are levers of power that make their ownership functionally more important than your legal title. So give you an example of this for a normal person. We could talk about how this works with, a, say, a publicly traded company or something. But for a normal person, okay, let's say that this is, this is hypothetical, okay, but there are certain cities in the United States that have a duty to house the homeless. There are not many of them, but New York is one of them. Let's say that New York comes up with a scheme where you, the one third of New Yorkers who actually own their own homes, probably a lot of those people are on Staten Island, which is the least populous borough. But let's just, let's just say this is the scheme, okay, just run with me here you have to take in homeless people for the good of the city, right? Because you already needed to get vaccinated for the good of the public, okay? And you need to, whatever, pay higher property taxes, even though you don't send your kids to public school. So you're already doing all this stuff that you don't want to do, even though it's yours, because you need to do it for the good of everybody else. Now you need to take in the homeless. Burnham doesn't actually see that as distinct from being a slave, if you don't have control over who come, who can or can't come in and out of the doors of your house, you don't actually own your house. That's the contention. That ownership, such as people have understood it in classically liberal setups, such as the United States, but also any Anglo-Saxon country, and to one degree or another, any European either descended or, in the case of Japan, say, arranged political structure, Ownership is not what it used to be because control is not what it used to be. And control has been ceded by the owner, whether he's a small owner, he just owns his house, or a big owner. Let's say he, you know, is JP Morgan and you know runs JP Morgan, the bank, right? That that ownership has been ceded to managers by a process ongoing in all of these countries certainly before the First World War. So I'm bringing in Burnham and I actually recommend, Burnham is a lot less dense than Quigley and a lot shorter. I mean, he's got other books that we'll, we'll probably talk about later, but I would recommend that, you know, if you're listening to this, you pick up a copy of the Managerial Revolution because you're going to find it filling in gaps and being clearer than Quigley is, but about really all the same dynamics, just slightly different terminology. So ownership, self-sovereignty has been ceded to a system that's bigger than any one person. And, right. you know, I, I don't know, to call that the zeitgeist, is that going too far perhaps? Um, but the result being then that where once we had a belief in man's necessity to survive, we've also then created a belief in man's expectation of preservation by others outside of his own self. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And this, and this gets, this gets morphed in, especially the rhetoric of the GOP in the United States into, you know, America is about pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. And there, there's always kind of a sick irony there because it's not like the GOP doesn't also participate in this managerial system. So, you know, you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, except when we're talking about investment law, in which case we're going to make it as easy as possible for these hedge funds or these other investment vehicles to thrive. I mean, if, uh, I, had to, know, if I had to think of like a manager's manager, Mitch McConnell does come to mind, you know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah, and it, it's also, it, it, it makes sense of a lot of other things, but I think just to just to stick to money stuff for right now, there, there are elements of traditional American as political assertions, what Wilmore Kendall would call our tradition. So that's the constitution, but that's other things. That's the common law and its assumptions. Lots of things go into that. That tradition assumes that a prop property is a man's own, right? That's, that's where we get when we're talking about things like self-defense, castle doctrine mm -hmm. or extension of stand your ground laws or definition of stand your ground laws. The reason we're having that debate is because we have identified both something natural 
about self-defense or what we also call the right to life, as well as something that is not natural, but is among us traditional and legal, okay, constitutionally enshrined about self-defense, about the right to life, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What the managerial state's going to do is it's not going to necessarily abolish those things overnight. This is also, I think, very helpful about reading Burnham is that having been a revolutionary himself out and out, he understands the dynamics of successful revolution, which is almost never instantaneous. It exists for more or less time parasitically, either within or on top of or both some previous social order. So he's very clear that, for instance, well, how does how does the modern world replace the medieval world where you have what he calls feudal attachments that don't have to do with money? Well, it doesn't do that by, it's not like somebody in Florence in the 14th century suddenly says, I'm going to charge interest, even though nobody says that's okay. And he gets thrown in jail, but somehow succeeds nonetheless. No, it exists parasitically. It actually, it especially in the case of the House of Fugger in Germany, or some of the banks that we mentioned in Italy, it's going to help kings especially become a lot more powerful than they used to be. So it's going to be, it's going to be, I use the word parasitic because I have Christian convictions about many of these things. But if you want to be a little less judgmental, you could say symbiotic. It has a symbiotic relationship with the order that it is gradually replacing. So before the banker replaces the king, the banker is the king's best friend. Okay. And that might go on for two centuries or three centuries, but eventually the banker will become king himself. He just won't be crowned. So a managerial state isn't going to say, in the case of the United States, for example, you know, Franklin Roosevelt didn't get inaugurated and then begin. And a lot of people sense this in the 1930s. It's not really an accident that Burnham comes out of, as does so much of what was called the old right in the United States, come out of reaction to the New Deal. Franklin Roosevelt doesn't say, I'm going to change our entire constitutional order. Remember what Abraham Lincoln did in the Civil War, and then it mostly got rolled back? Remember what Woodrow Wilson did in the First World War, and then it mostly got rolled back? I'm going to do more than that and all of it, and it's going to be permanent. Of course, he didn't say that. Um, And that's not just a matter of political shrewdness. It's also a matter of people don't know at the time precisely all that they're doing, right? That's a that's, that's just an absurd idea of human nature, as if even the most conspiratorial people in groups have a sense of everything that they're doing, all the ramifications. What he is doing is fundamentally changing the way that our country works by gradually replacing self-determination with its risks, both for large capitalists and for small people, wage earners, small you know, landholders. He's he's taking away those risks and he's replacing them with management authorities, the Tennessee Valley Authority in Appalachia, the Social Security Administration, lots of other things. And that is going to change the United States fundamentally. Okay. The changes are much more drastic and obvious in say Russia in 1917 or Germany in 1933, but Burnham sees them as of a piece. So I'm going to dial this back just for a moment for some specific Mm -hmm. history questions, since I know you're the the walking encyclopedia. I mean, you mentioned the Stalin-Hitler pact. (laughs) Yeah. um, And that's news to me. So tell me a little bit more just about uh, that, its name, and then um, what that meant. Because uh, my understanding is that the the fighting between Germany and Russia in the Second World War was far more horrific than anything else seen on any other fronts. Uh, The Pacific got pretty rough. But... Um, you know, there, there was no love lost between these guys in the end. So d- d- just fill me in a little bit on this. Yeah. Yeah. So th- this, this is a pact that unless you're kind of into the second world war and, or you are a, you are a leftist or you're up on leftist kind of internal political history, it, it's pretty obscure. And <laughs> the reason is that I think it gives the lie as it did to many people at the time to the idea that we are fighting some kind of, as we talked about in previous episodes, some kind of ultimate satanic-like existential evil in fighting national socialist-controlled Germany. Okay, 
So the Molotov, it's called after the names of the foreign ministers of respectively Russia and Germany, the Molotov, like Molotov cocktail, the Molotov Ribbentrop Pact. And it's made between the Soviet Union and Germany in 1939, shortly before, I mean, really about a week before. <laughs> it's really a mutual invasion of Poland. And that's, and that's the point. Okay, gotcha. now We remember that as the Germans start the Second World War. Okay, they have help. <laughs> and the point of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact is a very traditional exercise in Eastern European politics, which is how are we going to divide up these big, flat, fertile countries, respectively, historically, Poland and Ukraine? Okay, so what's now called Ukraine, what's now called Poland, have they go, they go in and out of existence at many times in history because big, flat, fertile places are very enticing to, you know, hungry states hmm. because it's going to feed them. It's going to, it's going to supply them. It's going to provide industrial capacity perhaps, but certainly agricultural, just, just basic biomass capacity. So Poland and, and Ukraine have been partitioned in many ways at many times. This is the 1939 version of that. And so it's a non-aggression pact, which is basically like when we get close to each other, we're agreeing not to continue fighting. Now, obviously that collapses later. And that, that's, that's the part that people know, right? Is the bitterness, the size, the intensity of the Eastern Front in the Second World War. But before that, they agree to disagree. Now, the reason this is so disappointing to leftists and, and probably unknown to many the only leftists that I've run into who are actually aware of these things are either very pacifistic, so they're against the Soviet Union as such, or they are the <laughs> somewhat ironically called tankies, so Stalinists, I mean, like actual Stalinists today. So it, it does exist on the internet, so I assume they do exist in real life somewhere. Maybe. Yeah, Russian but, bots. Russian bots are everywhere. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, they're probably just. Yeah, they're probably just you know covert Duganists. But the the, the non aggression pact is seen by many leftists at the time as a deal with the devil because they had been telling, for instance, the Communist Party USA had been telling the American public the reason that you need to support the Soviet Union is because we need to oppose fascism. Mm -hmm. Right. Remember from our discussion of. Weimar Germany, anti-fascist and anti-fascism are in their just pure historical origin, communist terms. And so communist parties all over the world have been using these terms and, you know, saying Hitler is, you know, the next incarnation of Satan. So, I mean, paraphrase, they don't believe in Satan, but you know what I'm saying? They've been saying that for generally the entirety of the 1930s. And now all of a sudden Moscow says, nope, we're done. We're not saying that anymore. This is not the biggest problem in the world. And some people are going to go along with that, obviously. But many true believers who sign up for things like the Communist Party USA or Socialist Workers Party, as James Burnham did, are smart enough and idealistic enough to realize, hey, like I thought, you know, during the Spanish Civil War and, you know, before that, even, you know, this was the worst thing in the world. We've been fighting Nazis in the streets of Germany for two decades, close to two decades by 1939. Why all of a sudden is this okay, right? And it's okay because as Burnham would say, ideology, pure political ideology might motivate different people. And it does need to be convincing to a large percentage of the population. But his, his observation is if you see two people that you thought were ideologically separated, the Soviet Union and National Socialist Germany, come together, then what you need to think about is not like, why are they contradicting themselves? But what did you miss yeah. about them? Qui bono. That, exactly. Yeah. Qui bono. So I'd like you to do the same thing, uh, rolling back even further in the conversation to mm -hmm. World War One and the idea yeah. of wagging the dog and the government's kind of wanting this to happen before it happened. Uh, my limited knowledge of, of pre-World War One kind of says, okay, I can see where Germany is hankering for the fight. Uh, I yeah. There hasn't been a land war for quite a time. The last time that there was, it was kind of, you get together, you shoot, someone wins, you get an extra property, you know, the poor people suffer, but it's all right. We end up good in the end. Mm -hmm. And oops, there's a lot of bigger guns now. 
Is that fair? Is that what you were getting at? Um, how is this impacted by the America particularly wanting to be involved in this war? Yeah. In each case, you can see there are a series of diplomatic skirmishes throughout, let's say, roughly 30 to 40 years prior to the beginning of the First World War. Some of this has to do with, especially once uh, William II becomes Kaiser of Germany, Germany's naval buildup, which is going to make them a world power in a way that they are not um, until then. They have very few colonies. They're not that desirable. Namibia still is not a world leader in really anything, except maybe, you know, their rugby team is disproportionately good. I got, I don't know. I mean, relative to their population, whatever, you know, they, they, they don't have a lot going for them as a colonial power. They're trying to become a maritime power. And that is very threatening to the British who are the world's preeminent power maritime or otherwise before the first world war. There are innumerable causes. It, it's, I mean, I, it, it's, I'm at the risk of saying everything causes everything. When you think about the beginning of the First World War, a series of entangling alliances shifting um, over the two decades before 1914 among various European powers, commitments that are honored, opportunities that are missed, all kinds of crazy stuff. In a basic sense, what is happening is that war is beneficial, really, especially to managerial states. Because, and this is, this is something you can observe in classically liberal political parties in any Western country, is that they'll usually be fairly pacifistic because they understand that, that war, while good for certain kinds of business, is generally bad for things like private liberties, property rights, and especially smaller businesses. So if you want to ensure the protection of everyone's property rights, everybody's personal liberties, then you will generally avoid war. That is a refrain heard throughout the American political tradition until the Second World War, because we are, we are a thoroughly classically liberal political order. You're going to hear it in various parties, the old liberal capital L party in the United Kingdom, German equivalent, French equivalent, et cetera. What war is really beneficial for is for a managerial state, especially large, mass mobilized modern wars, where large businesses that can be effectively managed through government and non-government partnerships, where effectively the even ostensibly private companies become extensions of the government's will and industrial demands and needs war is very beneficial for that conglomeration. So in 1941, Burnham doesn't have available to him the phrase military industrial complex, but that is what in saying managerial state, he is describing that conglomeration of business, finance, and the state also in its military aspect that's gonna to come together and it's all going to get much bigger if we have a large war every time we have a war. Now that's gonna be bad for personal liberties, that's gonna be bad for property rights, that's gonna be bad for whatever group happens to be during a given war, an outgroup, whether it's German Americans or Japanese Americans or pick your group in your war, whatever it is, but it's going to ensure the thriving of the managerial state, which is in Dwight Eisenhower's terms in the original text of that speech that he gave, the military industrial congressional complex is what he originally said. Yeah. So the way that that works in the, in the United States is that on its surface, President Wilson is running for re-election in 1916. He promises, and I mean, the slogan, the slogan he uses, as we are in other senses, building up to war, really favoring the the British in every way that we possibly can, and our our governing class being literally intermarried with the British. I mean, remember that Winston Churchill, who is the British naval secretaries in the First World War, his his mother's American, right? In 1916, Wilson runs with the slogan, "He kept us out of the war," <laughs> and somewhat similarly to today, in 1916, we we're actually we're actually fighting a war to to quell 
both fighting, gun running, general lawlessness on our southern border because of Mexican civil war, okay, ongoing there. So we have, I mean, many troops that will later be deployed to Europe first get mobilized and stationed on the southern border in 1916 because we have an actual problem there. So he kept us out of the war. He's taking care of business at home. This is how Wilson runs. Now, this is not what he's doing privately. And Roosevelt is very similar with the Second World War. And getting into the war is extremely unpopular in the United States. But once the media shifts its tone, even more decisively than it already had, it was generally anti-German in the United States before 1917. But when we, by the time we declare a war on April 6, 1917, we are ready to go because our public has been told that, stop me if you've heard this before, we're fighting these people who are monsters, they're, they're killing Belgian nuns, they're killing children, they are the aggressors, they're destroying France, they're destroying Belgium, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, you've, you've heard it before, but you probably heard it about Osama bin Laden or Saddam Hussein in your own lifetime. Yeah, I don't know if it was a meme or not, but I think it was Kamala uh, said today, you know, Ukraine's a small country, Russia's a big country, the big country attack, that's bad, right? Something like that. So, <laughs> right. Just, right, um, right, right, right. For, yeah. for, for the sake of time, I got to ask now. Yeah. Um, so December 23rd, 1913, does that ring a bell? All right, did I stump you with that one? Too, too narrow. Yeah, that is that the is that the passage of the Federal Reserve Act yeah, or the correct. creation of the that's Federal correct. Reserve? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So the Federal Reserve plays into this in the way that you know, if you just remember back when we talked about the different uses of banks and especially of state banks, the purpose of having a a, a national bank and and this is the controversy in early American history too, is to fund a a state that wants to go into debt. And the reason that a state wants to go into debt, if, you know, it's never, never changes. Okay. A state wants to go into debt so that it can be at war either for a limited time in the case of say a medieval King going into debt to money lenders in order to go, you know, run around in Palestine or in the case of a modern state, it wants to be in perpetual debt. So it may be at least potentially at perpetual war. So the Federal Reserve is the culmination of a series of negotiations, including, uh, I mean, for lack of a better word, just machinations by a combination of Wall Street, which at this time is still rather ethnically divided. I think we've talked about this, that some of the investment banks are called the Yankee banks. Generally, ethnically speaking, those guys are going to be uh, actually, not even New Yorkers necessarily, but New Englanders, as it were, ethnically, if you can think in those terms. So not Roosevelt, but you know their dad or they themselves grew up in Connecticut or, or Massachusetts or Maine, and they come to New York to make their fortune. An enormous number of such cases. I mean, there's there's a New England society of New York, as if it were a kind of a, you know, they were living in a foreign land. So <laughs> think about that. So there's the Yankee banks, and then there's the Jewish banks. The Yankee banks, some of them still exist. Morgan, I think, is Chase, what's now Chase Manhattan. Um, some have been swallowed up in other ways. Some of the Jewish banks are gone. Uh, Lehman Brothers, most famously and most recently, is gone. But Goldman Sachs still exists. And that is an agglomeration of uh, some other things as well. So there's been, it has changed over time. And Wall Street no longer has that, those ethnic distinctions, really. But at the time, they are generally opposed to each other. I mean, they're just sort of rivals, right? So they're all rivals with each other. And then on a larger level, they're ethnic rivals. They're united. And this is when things really get bad is when Wall Street is united. They're united in the pursuit of a national bank system. So they finally get it in 1913. I think that the reason that a lot of people are going to know about this, the listeners, is because the, the, the notion of the evils of the Federal Reserve, fractional reserve banking, of central banking, are, are well ensconced probably in many of the listeners from our, our common Ron Paul priors. And, and that's good. What I want you to recognize is that that is a defense of the classically liberal American political order that 
may not even exist anymore. But certainly the Federal Reserve was created to take out of existence. So I talked about the New Deal. We talked about Wilson. But even before that, you have this notion that it would be better if the finances of the nation, rather than being subject to you know, the swings that are native to capitalistic economies, severe depressions, not caused by biological or you know, factors like disease or natural factors like a hurricane, but simply caused by market fluctuation. That, that doesn't actually happen in every historical economy, right? Happens in a capitalistic economy. They're going to take control of that. Precedent for that before 1913 had already been set by the guarantees that, for instance, JP Morgan had made seven years before that to prop up uh, failing markets in various ways. So I would say that we have a managed economy before 1913. What happens with the Federal Reserve Act is that we formalize the management of our economy, the management of our financial markets in a way that had been informal before that date. So the managed economy, the managed state, the managerial revolution, uh, we're kind of setting up next time, I think, a little bit here yeah. too. Mm -hmm. uh, but then, so let's close out with the distinction between a father and a manager. Yeah, this is something that we talked about in connection with Canada and the, the episode on the, the, the trucker convoy, Pastor Risto and others, is that a, a manager basically does not need to love. He needs to be competent with respect to the goals set by the organization. A father doesn't need to be salaried. He doesn't need to be in any larger organization necessarily because uh, the existence of the children is the cause of love and then also the cause of his action. Okay. So a manager is not really managing for the people underneath him. He doesn't necessarily know who they are or know what they do because the thing about a managerial system is that it can be infinitely scaled. You create more layers of management, or you find more effective management strategies or even tactics, and you can preserve the system as such, right? Fatherhood cannot be scaled infinitely, which is why in, you know, let's say world systems that have an ideological attachment to fatherhood that our world does not, such as medieval Europe, what you generally find above a certain scale is just pure chaos. <laughs> so you say like, well, who's in charge of the Holy Roman Empire? Well, you know, I mean, there's an emperor, but he's not, he's not really all that powerful and he can't do this and he can't do that. And if he wants to kill Martin Luther, he actually can't do that, you know, unless Luther goes here, but Luther's not going to go here. So he's fine, you know. So above a certain scale, a, a world system in the state and also in the church cannot really enact a managerialism or, or really it doesn't have managers. No one's managing the Holy Roman Empire. Management can be infinitely scaled. And so power can be scaled. And so, you know, I, you know, I can say, well, it's cute that you have power over this city of 70,000 people, but I have power over these 15 cities of between 70,000 and 2 million people because I can manage that. Right. So management is, in its most basic way, a technique that has a different motivation than fatherhood, but also therefore has different capacities than fatherhood, because finally the father has to go home and has particular children. And the whole thing is about the future of the children, not what the father's getting out of it. So I want, I want you to say more about that in terms of yeah. defining the distinction between father and manager okay. in that, I mean, I think I get it, but, mm -hmm. um, management or managers being a technique uh, still seems kind of vague to me. I mean, uh, fatherhood is a discipline of caring. Uh, the things that I've written down so far are trying to kind of uh, work it out. You know, father's sacrifice is kind of the primary call of the father yeah. is to sacrifice. The manager is not really called to sacrifice, at least not as we normally think of it. Uh, the manager is called instead to um, make efficient, Right. Uh, to to cut off what is causing sacrifice. So I can see that there. But then I, I just think we need a little more meat on these bones. Yeah. 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 And I think the reason that it it is a little elusive is because it's such a big, it's such a big assertion by Burnham 
um, and my distinction, not his, between managers and fathers is, is likewise huge. One basic way to think about it is that fatherhood is natural and therefore has natural attachments that bind outside of and, and cause sacrifice apart from how much you're going to get paid, whether anybody's going to see or care. You just do it because it's, it's born out of love and it's born freely. A manager is not a natural figure. He doesn't have to exist. You could have a human society without managers. Burnham maintains you could have one without capitalists. And he doesn't actually think that socialism is historically possible. So, <laughs> but you can't have a human society without fathers. It's just an illusion if you believe there is. So you, you have the, you know, uh, Citibank credit card ad that has two women and a kid. That's an illusion. There's no such thing as, as, a, as existence without fatherhood. You can have existence without managers. It's a basically unnatural position created for the maintenance of the system that it is meant to sustain. So we need somebody to manage all of these people so that we can control all of these people to guide them toward whatever, you know, and this is where Burnham sees the commonality, whether we're going to say it's the good of the German people, the flourishing of international communism, <laughs> for us now, public health, all of these people need to be managed towards some larger goal they cannot grasp without the help, the support, and the prodding of the managers. And so manager, managers are necessary within this system for the maintenance of the extensive power that this system has on offer, the, the size of the levers that this system of governing cities, nations, maybe the world <laughs> offers that previous systems did not offer because they were respecting private property rights or respecting the sanctity of the family or the sanctity of the church or whatever pre-modern goal you had. It's almost like a joke uh, from from my past, at least. I worked in an office building for a time. I remember being asked the question, you know, so what does your manager actually do? And I had I had to sit there and <laughs> yeah. kind of think about. It. I was like, so I'm doing this, and that guy's doing that. And he's, what what does he do? And I, you know, the budget. <laughs> he did the budget, um, yeah. which comes back to telling stories of control in relaying regime messages of control. And, and that primarily is what it is. They're a, they're a storyteller. And the story is, you need me to tell you what to do. Otherwise, right. nothing will get done. Um, right. Yeah? Yeah? Right. What, yeah. Be, what good be, is that? Go. <laughs> <laughs> this was my experience was well, like that. That was actually one of the biggest log jams in yeah. getting things done. Uh, honestly, right. Right. Because the man, the manager is there because the system is there. The manager is not there because he's particularly necessary unless Burnham identifies, he says, in the 19th century, it is actually true that the, what Marx would call the proletariat is pretty skilled. And if it realized that and could organize itself, it could have real power. But Burnham points out that by the time he's writing, he's probably writing in 1940, the book is published in 1941. The difference between a, a skilled laborer in a factory and all the stuff he has to know in the 19th century and what is called later an engineer is really not that, it's not that big, right? He's extremely skilled. He has to be in order to produce things, to produce, let's say, you know, boilers in 1847 or something. By 1939, 1940, 1941, Think about how much more this is true for an Amazon warehouse today. Your, your worker doesn't actually know that much. Almost everything that he's going to learn, he can be trained to do in a matter of months. So what you get instead is an increase in people who are neither capitalists because they're dependent on wages, nor are they workers because they don't actually have independent hard skills or the ones that they do are easily replaced by some other cog maybe even maybe even a robot they are they are more or less aspirationally capitalist right so they don't actually have a lot in savings but they can have a robinhood app they don't actually have a whole lot 
but they can do some conspicuous consumption of, you know, Starbucks or something. So the reason that you're going to have institutions like this and the spread of them is for the delight and even pacification of a group of people who, if they stop and think about what they're doing, they go to a job they hate, they don't really make anything. It's hard for them to say what their boss does. And they don't really know why they're doing what they're doing, except for the greater good of, you know, the U.S. insurance industry or the, you know, Department of the Interior or wherever their job happens to be, because jobs are going to look pretty similar. Um, you're, you're probably going to be in a big glass building, whether you work for the church or the Department of the Interior or an insurance company somewhere in suburban Connecticut, where you look, where you work looks the same, what you do is roughly the same. And what you do could easily be done by somebody else. So let's just bring this full circle and say, doesn't being an outlaw sound better? Yeah. And I think that is why you get within, especially younger people today, a certain atavism, a desire to return to something probably that they've never experienced simply for the sake of being free or freer which is very understandable. This was expressed in a more economically prosperous time as people's desire to be on vacation. But if that's less and less economically possible, then it's very understandable that people would just want to opt out altogether. And I think it's also why you saw so many people re-examining all kinds of things very practically about their own lives in the past two years, because COVID pre presented a, not just mental, but I would say even spiritual opportunity to think about what actually matters to you and <laughs> how you do or just really don't want to be managed. Yeah, vacation is for chumps. It's, it's sort of my <laughs> yeah. my new view. And you know, we can debate that, I suppose, another time. Um, but this idea of of returning to the new old, right? I think you just said this. Yeah. Um, right. That it's it we haven't actually been able to live in it because we we were born in the matrix, but now waking up from the matrix, we have a, a longing for something other than the bubble we've lived in. What I continue to fear truly is how naturally difficult that reality is compared to the soft little, you know, ambiotic fluid of living in the matrix bubble. Yeah. And yet the spirit within me knows it can't go back. I, I cannot yep. accept the kind of soul sucking emptiness that being a mere manager of nothing ultimately uh, pulls out of me. So this is all going somewhere, I think. And so would you give us a little hats up, hat tip, heads up? There we go for the for next time. Yeah, it's it's going in the direction of thinking about both on a macro level who the managers are and and what they are doing spiritually speaking, and also on the micro level what it is like either to be a manager or to be managed that there is something basically destructive, even self-destructive, if you've chosen, if you've chosen it for yourself, that people really do need to stop and think. This is, <laughs> this is, if I can, if I can say it this way, this is the most basic meaning of repentance that you just first stop and think about what you're doing. And if you realize that you are a participant in managerialism, and I, I don't mean that you have to fill out forms sometimes or something like, oh, I don't want to be an adult. That's not what I'm saying. But you need to think about what it means to be managed for another human being and decide whether you actually want to be managed or if you want to be a manager, because what we're going to contend next time is that it is, <laughs> it is neither natural nor good. You're listening to A Brief History of Power. You know where to find us or you wouldn't be here.